Good morning, church. It's uh, wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to see you here today and to have you join us online. Uh, Chris was right in mentioning uh, that Pastor Joe um, has recently been looking at, um, or last week his sermon was on knowing God. And actually there were some of the names of God that he mentioned, and I wonder if you can remember what some of those were. Uh, so we learnt about Elohim, God the Creator, and we learnt about Yahweh or Jehovah, the relational and personal God. We learnt about Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, and Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. All these different names of God give us insights to what God's character and what his personality is like. And this week, we're going to look at Jesus and some of the claims that he makes about himself. And we're gonna, I'm going to try to help you answer that very question. Who is Jesus? Uh, in recent weeks, many Americans would have considered the question, who is Donald Trump or who is Joe Biden? Uh, what is this person really like and who should I vote for? Um, I personally have found it really hard to figure out from the media what a politician is really like. It seems like everybody has a different opinion. Everybody claims to know the truth about this person. We live in a time where everything needs to be fact-checked and every news article is biased to the point where it's really hard to trust anything you read anymore. Well, if it's hard for us to get an, a good idea of who these people are today, what about Jesus? If we can't know these people living today, how can we hope to know about a man who lived 2,000 years ago? How can we know who Jesus really is, and what should we do about him? Well, thankfully, we, we don't need to have a political degree in politics, or a degree in politics to make up our minds about Jesus. We can read about what he did for, for ourselves. We can read about what he said for ourselves, and we can make up our own minds based on that. And perhaps most importantly, we can look at the claims that he made about himself and determine for ourselves whether he's a fraud or the one who he claims to be. And so today we're going to look at the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. But before I do that, let me just give you a, a quick warning about some of these claims. These claims that we're going to look at, they are explosive, they are provocative, they are confronting. They are deliberately challenging, and they demand a response from whoever hears them. They're not just trivial or insignificant claims. And once you hear them, you can't just ignore them or pretend you never heard them. They are universal claims about the life that we live. Either they're real claims, and they turn our lives upside down, or they ought to be, they ought to be outright rejected and discarded as the dangerous ramblings of some madman. With Jesus, there really is no middle ground. And so with that, let me pray and ask God to help us. Lord Jesus, I've made up my mind. I believe you are my Lord and Savior. I believe you are everything that you said that you are. I believe that you're the Son of God, that you died and you rose again, and you saved me from my sin. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us today, that, Father, we would understand who your Son, Jesus, really is. And I pray for those of us who perhaps have already made that decision, 
that we would leave here awestruck in awe of who you are and of all the things that you claim to be, the promises that you've made and the things that you have done. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to do that, to focus on you and your son today. I pray this to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The first I am statement, Jesus is the bread of life. It's found in John 6, 35 and says this. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. There are few things that smell better than freshly baked bread. Uh, In fact, this year, quite a few people that I know have started uh, baking bread and making it from scratch in their own homes, including my own mother and uh, a work colleague that I have. I wonder if you've met similar people. Uh, Near my workplace, there's this place called Destination Roll. They make Vietnamese pork rolls, and they're really, really good. But the reason they're really, really good is not because of the filling, but because of their freshly baked bread. It just smells so good. Now, Jesus makes this bold claim that he is the bread of life. If you come to him, he makes the claim that you'll never go hungry and you'll never be thirsty again. What a strange statement to make. Well, to be clear, Jesus is not saying that we'll never have to eat food or or drink water again. He is not claiming to be the answer to world hunger or the world's ongoing water crisis. I, in fact, would argue that his claim is even more outrageous than this. Jesus is claiming that he is the one who truly satisfies our spiritual hunger. In the same way that we need physical food to sustain our physical bodies, Jesus is the one we need to sustain our spiritual desires. What are these spiritual desires? Well, it's the desire that we have to live with meaning. It's the desire to know that our life has significance and purpose and to know that our lives really do matter in the end. It's built innately within every human being, our spiritual cry for meaning. And Jesus fulfills this need because not only did he create us with purpose, but he also enables, us to, enables our lives to count for eternity. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the one who gives life sustenance. A man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may have heard of him, was a German pastor in World War II. He worked as a double agent on behalf of the resistance and was involved in an attempt on Hitler's life. His activities soon became, came under suspicion, and so he was taken into custody and interrogated, and he spent 18 months in a Berlin military prison. Uh, in spite of his circumstances, he continued to hold out hope that, that once the Nazi regime was overthrown, that he would be released. Uh, the assassination attempt by Klaus von Stauffenberg on July 20th, 1944, unfortunately failed, and all the conspirators, including Dietrich, were sentenced to be executed. He lived out his final months in the Flossenberg concentration camp. He observed his fellow prisoners and Jews and the t- torture that they were subjected to. He came to the conclusion that a man's will to live is not determined by the amount of wealth that he has, by the amount of power he has, by his status or his accomplishments, because in their situation, none of these things mattered even in the slightest. A man's will to live is determined by hope, a hope that one day things will be better. And the day before his death, Dietrich passed on this message to a fellow prisoner, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. 
It's when hope is extinguished that the human spirit gives up. Without hope, our life is void of meaning and purpose. And so Jesus is making this bold claim. He is that hope. He's the filling in life that makes life satisfying, who makes it worthwhile. He's the part that matters, the part that it's all about. He is the hope that after the end, there is only the beginning of life. And that's what he claims. If you choose him, the bread of life, you'll never go hungry or thirsty again. Number two, Jesus is the light of the world. This statement comes from John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, for those of you who know me, I like to go running, and recently I've been going running on trails. And this one time I was out running with Carla, and uh, we decided that we would run uh, into the Lane Cove National Park. We'd run 10 kilometers one way and then run 10 kilometers back. Uh, but unfortunately, with a few kilometers to go, the light started to fade very quickly. Um, I wonder if you've ever been somewhere in the daytime and then only gone there at night and found out that it looked totally different. Uh, well, it was a little bit like that. We, uh, what looked like a very clear and obvious trail in the day on the way back at night looked very different. Uh, the fact that we were surrounded by bush and, trail and tall trees didn't really help. Uh, and so to make a long story short, we made a wrong turn. Uh, Carla thought we were going to die, um, but we managed to backtrack and eventually we made it safe and alive in the end. Surprise, surprise. Jesus says that he is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will never walk, and I add, will never run in darkness. I actually thought running in the dark was pretty exciting. It was quite adventurous. Uh, but I can understand why it's not that much fun when you're hungry, you're tired, and you're lost. And navigating through life can be really hard at times, can't it? There are times when it feels like we are running in the dark, unsure of our next footstep, unable to see the path, uncertain of the destination. But Jesus enables us to see life clearly. He illuminates to us the truth about life and how we ought to live it. He reveals to us the nature of man's existence in relation to the God who created us. When we understand life as illuminated by Jesus, then we will have clarity about where our direction, which direction our lives should take. You don't need a map or a headlamp or a life coach. Jesus is the light of life. He will be your guide and he will give light to your path. He also claims to be the light who overcomes our sin. Jesus' light makes sense even in the dark, dark world where war, human atrocities, and senseless evil occur behind closed doors every day. He makes sense even in the midst of our intense suffering, in the midst of persecution and grief and loss, when bad things happen to seemingly good people. In a pandemic-driven world, his claim, if you trust in him, is that he will guide you and illuminate your path through the darkest of valleys. He will bring you clarity and truth. At least that is his claim. John 1, 4-5 says this, The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Jesus is the light of life. His truth rings true even in darkness, and the darkness can never overcome it. Number three and number four both come from John chapter 10. Jesus is the gate, and Jesus is the good shepherd. 
reading from verses 7 to 18. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and life to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Shepherds in Jesus' time would often travel long distances with their flocks to find water and food. When it was time to rest, the shepherd would lead the sheep into an enclosure made out of stones or branches. The shepherd would lie down at the entrance of the enclosure to sleep, protecting the sheep from predators or thieves throughout the night. Jesus is the gate, and if we listen to his voice, we are his sheep. And only by going through Jesus can we find protection, safety, and security. Jesus is the gate to God's salvation for mankind. And Jesus is also the good shepherd. He knows his sheep and he calls them by name. In his time, shepherds were known to name their sheep individually. In larger towns or cities, multiple shepherds might share these enclosures with other flocks. When it was time to move out, the shepherds would call out their sheep by name and they would respond to their master's voice. The shepherds knew their own sheep individually and the sheep were so familiar with their master that they would recognize him and follow their master's voice only. It's a bit like when Pastor Joe calls out for his children, except I don't think he actually calls them by name. He yells out, my chillin', my chillin'. I don't know why he says my chillin', it's children, Joe. And they all come running, and apparently even a few extra at times. Sometimes I'll call Charisse when we're ready to go, hey, Charisse, but she only responds sometimes because I am not the good shepherd. Jesus, however, he is the good shepherd, and he willingly lays down his life for his sheep. A hired hand, he won't risk his life for the sheep. He's only there to get paid. He doesn't own them, and he doesn't get paid enough to risk his life. When a wild animal, a bear or a lion or a thief comes to take a sheep, the shepherd fights them off. The sheep aren't just his livelihood, they're also dear to him. He knows each one intimately. He knows them by name. He knows their spots and blemishes. He can tell them apart when they bleat, and he even recognizes their different personalities. And he's prepared to sacrifice his life for their sake. Last Sunday, I was doing a bit of research, and there was this tragic news story about a man who had drowned. Uh, The 55-year-old father died trying to save his 20-year-old son who was caught at the beach in a rip. Uh, Bystanders managed to pull both the father and son unconscious from the water. They were able to revive the son, but the father unfortunately passed away. 
And it was interesting because this story is definitely not the only one of its kind. Uh, in fact, as I browsed through the related articles, it turns out that there are more than just a handful of cases this year, and in fact every year, where parents or others have drowned trying to rescue their children. In this world, it's rare to find people who are willing to forego their own comforts or resources or, or to sacrifice anything for you without an ulterior motive. And yet Jesus is the good shepherd. He's willing to risk it all to save those he cares for. The good shepherd, he knows his sheep, they know him, and he's willing to lay down his life for them. Jesus' claim is that he knows you. He knows every little thing about you, your spots and your blemishes, your faults and all, and he's laid down his life for you. Will you follow him in return? Number five, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. In the fifth I Am statement, Jesus' friend Lazarus has fallen very ill and he eventually succumbs to that illness and, and dies. Jesus hears news of his sickness but purposely delays going to visit him. So by the time Jesus and his disciples arrive, Lazarus has actually already been buried, dead and buried in the tomb for four days. In the passage that we're about to read, Jesus is speaking with one of Lazarus' sisters, Martha, as he arrives at their house. John eleven twenty three to 27 says this. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. And so Jesus has moved into action and he goes to the tomb where Lazarus has been buried. He tells the people to roll away the stone covering the entrance. He prays to his Father in heaven and commands Lazarus to come out. And to everyone's shock and amazement, Lazarus, dressed in his burial clothes, walks out of the tomb alive. With just one word, Jesus brings back Lazarus from the dead. You see, Jesus could have come back earlier. He could have healed Lazarus from his sickness and he could have prevented him from dying in the first place. But instead, in his perfect timing, Jesus chose to demonstrate his resurrection power by raising Lazarus from the grave and proving that he really is the resurrection and the life. Jesus has power over life and death to give and to take. He created life, he sustains life, and he has the power to restore life. And because he holds this resurrection power, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus will live even though they die. That's Jesus' fifth life-redefining claim, that he is the resurrection and the life. Number six, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The religious leaders, or Pharisees at this point, are seeking to get rid of Jesus by any means necessary. They too have been provoked, challenged, and confronted by Jesus' claims. They've made up in their minds that Jesus is a fraud. They've regarded him as a danger to society and a threat to their religious order. Even though they cannot fault his teaching, nor can they explain the power behind his miracles, they begin to conspire to get rid of him. But Jesus is ready to lay down his life for his sheep. He knows their murderous intentions, and so he begins preparing his disciples for his imminent departure. He takes the time to reassure them and teach them about their eternal security. 
And so we read from John 14, 1 to 3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, and I have t- would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus promises his followers that he has prepared a place for them in God's mansion, that he is going there, that he will come back to bring them with him. Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, asked him this in verses 5 to 7. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Do you want to know the way to heaven? Well, Jesus says, it's him. He's the way, and he's the only way. And it's only because of what Jesus has done that we can be welcomed into his Father's house. Jesus secures for us the way to heaven by paying the price for our sin. Our disobedience to God and the breaking of his holy laws mean that we are subject to his judgment. We're all guilty of telling lies when it's convenient for us. We're guilty of taking things that aren't rightfully ours, like our company's time, or we illegally stream content online, or perhaps we covet what other people have. We're greedy. We put ourselves and our own interests first before God or others. We may not have murdered anyone, but we sure get angry at them and say words that we regret or think thoughts that we're ashamed of. We watch and gorge ourselves on entertainment that is violent, overtly sexual or outright godless or blasphemous, hoping that God will turn a blind eye to it. We look at others as objects of lust instead of treating them as our brothers and sisters. These, these are just some of the ways in which we fall short, in which we stand condemned in the face of God's holy and perfect moral standard. And so how can such sinful and flawed people like us ever be accepted into God's perfect kingdom? What kind of place would heaven be if God allowed such people in there? Well, Jesus made a way only because of Jesus. You see, he never sinned. He is God become man. We remember his birth each Christmas, now less than a week away. He walked the earth and lived a perfect sinless life. Unlike you and I, he never lied. He never cheated. He never stole or had an evil intention. He fully lived out the Father's will in everything that he did. He made a number of bold and provocative claims as we've heard today. And he alone satisfied God's holy and perfect standard. And he alone could get into heaven based on his own merit. It was on the cross that Jesus gave up his life for us. We who deserve judgment and death because of our sin are now free because Jesus was crucified in our place. The good shepherd really did lay down his life for his sheep on the cross. Jesus is the only way to God. He is the gate to God's salvation, and no one can come to the Father except through him. He is also the truth about God. Everything he did and said was perfectly aligned with the will of the Father. If you want to know the truth about God, just take a look at Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And Jesus is also the life. Without him there is no eternal life. He makes it possible, and he himself is what makes eternity worth living. 
He is the bread of life, the light of life, the source of life from whom rivers of living waters flow. He is the resurrection and the life. To truly live is to really know and love Jesus. Number seven, Jesus is the true vine. We read from John 15, 1 to 5. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the true vine, and we are his branches. If we remain connected to the vine, we will naturally produce much fruit. But if we don't remain in him, we can do nothing. If you sever a branch from the tree, it falls to the ground and withers up. It can no longer produce fruit. And likewise, our lives, unless we are connected to Jesus, and unless we are finding our nourishment and sustenance in him, we will never grow in ways that truly matter. When we're connected to him, we can grow in love, humility, godliness, and grace. Over time, we'll change in ways that glorify God and will make an impact for eternity. But without him, the only things we can hope to achieve are temporary and worldly. Without him, whatever we hope to achieve will never last. In the long run, it will come to nothing. And one day we will realize this, this futility in attempting to do things without Jesus' help. And so these are seven of Jesus' stunning claims. And they're not really for the faint of heart. They're not all that palatable. They don't come in one easy-to-swallow pill. They are life-altering, life-redefining, and if you let them, they will turn your life upside down. If anybody else made such claims, you would question their state of mind. But the difference with Jesus is that he doesn't just say things. He also backed up everything he claimed to be, everything he said. You see, the bread of life fed over 5,000 people using just a few loaves of bread. The light of the world restored sight to a man born blind so that he could see clearly. The good shepherd really did lay down his life for his sheep. And on the third day, the resurrection and the life rose from the dead and he conquered the grave. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. His disciples back then and across the world today are evidence that when we are connected to the true vine, we will bear fruit that will last. And so today, if you've not made up your mind about Jesus, I urge you not to just take my word for it, but to find out for yourself. Read about what he himself says and to determine the validity of his statements for your own. If you need help or clarification in doing that, ask someone you trust who knows the Bible. And for those of us who call Jesus Lord, may we continue to be awestruck by him, amazed by his grace, and transformed by his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, even though your word may not be easy for some of us to digest, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, to open our ears, open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. Father, I thank you that you sent your son, Jesus. And I thank you for all the things that he claimed, 
for all the things that he did, that we might be able to trust him and put our faith in him. We thank you for the bread of life who meets our spiritual needs, who meets our spiritual hunger, who gives us reason and purpose and significance in life. I thank you for the light of the world. I thank you that you illuminate to us what it means to really live, what it means to live in relationship with you. Father, I thank you that you are the gate, that by you and through you we can find significance, that we can find security, that we can find safety and protection. And Father, I thank you that you're the good shepherd, that you would risk it all for our sake. Father, I thank you that you're the resurrection and the life. I thank you that you hold the power to give and to take away. And Father, I thank you that we can trust in your resurrection power that one day, even though we die, we will still live. And Father, I thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that you show us the way to the Father, that you are the truth about the Father, and that you are life and life eternal. And Lord, I thank you that you are the true vine, that in you and when we remain connected to you, that we can bear fruit, fruit that will last, fruit that will make an impact for eternity. Jesus, truly you are amazing. Jesus, truly you are all that you said to be. And so Jesus, I ask that you would help us to see you in all your glory. I pray that you would help us to live in a way that is consistent with our trust in you, all these things. Father, I thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, church. It was wonderful to have you and to be able to share God's word with you this morning. I hope to see you this Friday at Christmas. I'll see you then.